I believe. Anderson Silva's debut was absolutely perfect. There was like almost no mistakes in the fight. He didn't really get hit in the fight. And it was a technical masterpiece he put together but for Michael Chandler even though he didn't get caught he did get hit a lot to the legs at one point his leg buckled and those winging punches to the body even though they conditioned Hooker to eventually get knocked out by the big left hook those winging right body shots are scary against a lot of guys man if he throws that against you know maybe Justin Gaethje or Conor McGregor or a lot of these other guys who can counter him it could be a bad day for him because he's reaching all the way in with those right hands and frankly whenever he attacks he's putting everything into his punches which does mean he probably hits the hardest out of anybody in this division but it also leaves him extremely open if he does not land but look at what a lot of people are saying now it seems like most people want that Michael Chandler versus Justin Gaethje fight Justin Gaethje went out and said that he would fight Michael Chandler he knows he's coming off a loss to the champion so he said he'll take a fight with one of the top contenders he'll take a fight against Michael Chandler he said against Conor McGregor against Dustin Poirier against Charles Oliveira and he also said Nate Diaz and it's crazy with Nate Diaz because he came out and started talking trash a bit even though it was Dustin Poirier who kind of started it recently with Nate talking about you know he wants to beat him up and stuff it's crazy how Nate's trash talking gets to these fighters I don't understand it man he brings like a different perspective to fighting as if like he never loses if he doesn't get finished he treats it like he didn't lose the fight and when he starts vocalizing that perspective it gets under fighters skin and it's so weird to see that unfold he is a big star he does bring a lot of eyes to his fight so that's another reason why people want to fight him even though he's not a top contender but it also seems like the things he says does motivate fighters to come up against him it's almost like the same reason a lot of people want to fight Nick Diaz back in the day but the fight is Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler that should be for the number one contender and I don't want to hear the this talk about Dustin Poirier versus Connor for the belt and I'm with Justin Gaethje when he says that if Connor versus Poirier happens again and it happens for the belt that he will not fight again he said he will not fight in the UFC ever again if that happens and that would be crazy I understand Errol Hawani keeps bringing it up and he's like promoting that sort of thing or he, at least he's saying that's a very likely thing to happen for the UFC financially it does make a bit of sense there is the running narrative that they are one-on-one -on -one with each other they both beat each other by knockout therefore they can have the trilogy fight for the belt but the time gap is such an important thing here Connor beat Dustin Poirier like six to seven years ago in another division where both guys were not in their prime Dustin beat Connor essentially when they're both in their prime or at least physically in their prime some people won't count this Connor in his prime because of his different style, but this is the most credited win between the two. Connor should fight someone else. Connor should fight either Nate Diaz, which makes a lot of sense, or he could fight Tony Ferguson, which also makes a lot of sense. Both those fights are big money fights. Tony's name has been going around for quite a long time. A lot of casual fans recognize that name, so that is a good fight that would happen as well. Dustin Poirier has to fight Charles Oliveira. I understand that Dustin isn't as motivated to fight Charles. He said he really wants to fight Connor or Nate Diaz, but the fight that makes the most sense is Dustin versus Oliveira for the vacant undisputed title because it does not seem like Habib is going to come back anytime soon. They're both at the top of the division right now. People want to put Dustin Poirier as like number one, and then after it's like Michael Chandler and Charles Oliveira. I frankly put Oliveira and Dustin at the same level right now. Yes, Dustin did beat Connor. He beat Dan Hooker and he did beat Justin Gaethje before he lost to Habib. But there is the thing going against him that he's only on a two-fight win streak. His last win was extremely close. He got hurt in the fight. And then you look at Charles Oliveira. He beat Tony Ferguson in his last fight. And he's on the longest win streak of the division. Almost all of them by finish. The thing going against Charles Oliveira though is he doesn't have the same level of competition overall that Dustin has. Therefore, they're going to have to fight each other, man. That's the fight for the undisputed title. And talking about Conor McGregor. So... I see a lot of people talking about Connor's stance, how he changed for this fight. He wasn't the same kind of guy who was bouncing around, all that stuff. And to be honest, he hasn't really been that guy 
ever since he came up to the lightweight division. Notice even when he fought Eddie Alvarez. If you look carefully when he fought Eddie Alvarez or when he fought Nate Diaz the second time, when was he ever bouncing around? His stance was a little bit different. It was more wide, it was more sideways, but he didn't have that same kind of footwork. There was only that one sequence in the Eddie Alvarez fight where he backed up very quickly and then countered with a 1-2. Other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of that flashy footwork that we used to see from Conor in the 145-pound division. So that narrative, I think, is a little bit exaggerated. The fact that he's not the same because he doesn't have that bouncy footwork. As soon as he came up to 155 and 170, he never had that bouncing footwork. Right? He didn't have against Don Cerrone, somewhat against Nate Diaz the first time, almost none against Nate Diaz the second time, and almost none of it against Eddie Alvarez. I would say the more important thing to look at is not the footwork necessarily, but it's the way he was boxing. It was the way he was putting his combinations together. And the fact that he was putting any combinations together is something that Connor's not really used to doing in a fight. And more importantly, it's the squared up stance. It was more of the squared stance facing Dustin Poirier instead of having the sideways stance. That's a little bit more important than the actual bouncy footwork, right? The fact that he's so square to Dustin Poirier, it does allow his left hand to come out quicker, but there's not as much leverage in the punch and it doesn't become as much of a sniping weapon for Conor McGregor. Conor is a sniper, right? And when he's squaring his stance like that and sacrificing leverage for more speed and volume, that sniping factor from his game gets diminished a little bit. And yes, there's all always things he could have done better. Connor could have used a little bit more movement, especially to get away from some of those leg kicks. He's putting so much weight on his front leg, he's not able to really get away from it. And they're calf kicks, which can be a lot harder to check in midst of the action. Connor could have also been a little bit more sideways and put more leverage in his punches instead of popping them from the shoulder, kind of how he was doing with a lot of them. And I see a lot of people talking about he should have kept his distance a little bit more. He should have been a little bit more of a sniper in the fight, but that is discrediting a lot of what Dustin Poirier was working with. Dustin was landing a lot of those light kicks, which didn't allow Connor to snipe him that much, or at least didn't allow him to act as a sniper from long range because his foundation is getting attacked. He needs to do something to be aggressive and force actions just to relieve from some of that pressure. He tried to check, but it wasn't really working. It was getting right around the shin. So it may have caused a little bit of a mental panic in Conor McGregor to really deliver damage before this light kick settles in a little bit too much to the point where he's not going to be able to fight the same and that's exactly what happened. Also you have to give a lot of credit to Dustin's check right hook. The first time he threw it which was like 10 seconds into the first round it let Connor know hey if you get reckless if you throw that big left hand and extend with it you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble man and frankly that's the same punch that started the ending sequence in the second round that rocked Conor McGregor. So yes in hindsight there are a few things that Conor can adapt on and bring into a rematch such as a lot more kicks, a lot more movements, a lot more angles, and stay away from keeping a heavy front foot, right? I think Connor's kicks from the first fight would have been a big help in this one because if you notice the way Dustin Poirier was moving in this fight, he kept moving laterally, left and right in the cage, and round and spinning kicks would have absolutely cut off the movement and allowed Connor to start finding that left hand even more so. This is exactly what he did against guys like Dennis Seaver, against Diego Brandao, and even against Dustin Poirier in their first fight. Connor's kicks at 145 allowed him to align his left hand a lot better because when he's cutting off your left movement with a spinning kick and he's cutting off your right movement with a round kick, you kind of have to stay in front of him and this allows him to snipe you a lot easier. But the fact that he barely threw any kicks in this fight, he only threw like three, it gave so much freedom to Dustin Poirier. He could move anywhere he wanted to and Connor wasn't really intercepting it or even causing a bit of hesitation for Dustin Poirier to take off an angle. And that's just talking about Connor McGregor. Dustin could have brought things even better for himself. There are a lot of opportunities for him to go under those left hands and take Connor 
to the ground. Only one time he was able to do so from switching his stance forward and then going under for the double leg. Instead of even throwing a calf kick, he could throw side kicks to the knee. And he can also keep a good jab on Conor. If Nate Diaz showed anybody anything about fighting Conor McGregor as a southpaw fighter, is that it's great to keep a jab on him so he can't really attack you on the center line. And that is where most of Connor's attacks come from. So all in all, we have to see Dustin versus Oliveira. It's always fun to contemplate on a on a rubber match, but I don't think it should happen right now. I think Connor needs another win. I think Dustin should fight for the belt. And fighting for the belt, it should not be against Connor McGregor. That would be ludicrous. Some people would ask me, how do you get away from calf kick? Well, it is a lot harder in MMA to do so, right? You can obviously just turn your foot into them, but as you saw against Conor McGregor, they do wrap around your leg, man. It's a weird angle, and it's so low of an attack. If you're going to check it, you're going to check it with the weaker part of your shin, right? That part of your shin is thinner, and it's weaker. So even if you do check it, you're not going to have the same kind of blowback or returning damage to the opponent. Also, the fact that it's such a low kick, your opponent can have less of a tell when they throw it. The higher the kick goes, the more of a tell there is. There's more telegraph into that kick. The lower it goes, the less telegraph there is. That can be mixed up into combinations. You can counter your opponent easier with those kicks. It's such an effective light kick. Everybody should be throwing those. I know Connor says he didn't expect it or he didn't expect the damage it would cause. But how can you really say that when you've seen Henry Cejudo's leg give out? You've seen Sean O'Malley's leg give out. You've seen Michael Chandler's leg give out, right? Look what happened to Gilbert Melendez when he fought Jeremy Stevens. That was a big display of calf kicks destroying the opponent. This is why it's great to always watch fights and always research, man, because you won't be surprised by leg kicks like this. But frankly, one of the best things you could probably do is counter a calf kick. You can go with a side kick to the body and stuff like that. Although that requires an advanced level of timing. But someone like Steven Thompson can absolutely do that. If you take a lot of weight off your front foot and put it on your back foot, there's already momentum to throw that side kick. You can go right over the calf kick and intercept them, knock them off balance. Because the kick is so low, you can simply move away from it easier than any other kick. So there are pros and cons to every single individual strike. Yes, the calf kick is so low that it's hard to tell whenever it's getting thrown. But the con from that is calf kicks do not reach as far as other kicks do. So it's a lot easier to take a back step away from the calf kick. This also allows a rebound into a counter shot right afterward. So let's say you back off away when someone's throwing a calf kick at you. It's a lot easier now to rebound, get back in their face, and land like a right hand or a left hook or something like that, or even a kick of your own, because you don't have to back up away that much. Frankly, what I like to do is, if someone throws a calf kick at me, I like to shift backwards into the opposite stance and then chase the outside foot for a big left hand. Let's say if the opponent is an orthodox fighter, right? We're both orthodox. I see they're going to throw a calf kick at me, so I simply switch stances backwards to take off that range completely. They're not going to be able to kick my leg now. Now they have a follow through with the kick, and they're going to have to retract it. This gives me a lot of time to get into the southpaw stance and then explode to take the outside foot, which is right there in front of me. They have no grounds to move away from me, and I chase with a big long left hand. And there's many more creative ways you can go about doing this. And I've been doing something very interesting. So I was listening to a few podcasts and listening to what a few people have to say about Max Holloway and how quote-unquote big and long he is, specifically long he is for the featherweight division. And I keep seeing these inaccuracies about Max Holloway's length compared to the featherweights and also compared to the lightweights. So I crunched some numbers here. So Max Holloway's height is 5'11" which is roughly 180 centimeters. So that's pretty tall for the featherweight division. I mean, that's on the likes of uh, Shane Burgos and Kelvin Cater. His reach, though, is 69 inches, which is 175 centimeters. So his reach is actually shorter than his height, which is less than the average human being. So I crunched the numbers for the featherweight height and reach of the top 15. Featherweight's average height is actually 5'9 and a half. 5'9 and a half is the average height for featherweight. 
which is 176 centimeters. That is only an inch and a half shorter than Holloway. The average reach of the featherweight division is 71.3 inches, 181 centimeters, which is over two inches longer than Holloway's. So in fact, when you combine height and reach and all that, Holloway's overall like an average featherweight to today's standards. In fact, if you want to combine Holloway's height and reach and combine the featherweight's height and reach and compare the mean to each other, Holloway's actually shorter than the average featherweight. So that's a bit of an inaccuracy when you talk about Holloway compared to the featherweight division. And that talk always goes right into Holloway may be long for the featherweights, but he's short for the lightweights. Well, let's look at how big these lightweights are. Crunching the numbers, lightweight's average height of the top 15 is 5 foot 9 and 3 quarters, 69.7 inches, which is only 0.3 inches taller than featherweight. They're roughly the same height. The average height of the top 15 from featherweight to lightweight is roughly the same. When you look at the reach though, lightweight's average reach is 72.3 inches. It's 1 inch longer than featherweight, 183.6 centimeters. It's not that far apart, man. When you talk about height and reach, featherweight and lightweight are practically the same. They're virtually identical. Where it really changes is kind of the weight aspect, not so much the height and reach. So when people talk about Max Holloway, it's more about weight than height and reach, right? These guys weigh a little bit more than he does. I mean, he does weigh more than Connor and maybe more than Poirier around Poirier's weight. So in fact, in that case, he's actually not that small for lightweight at all. He's taller than the average lightweight, but his reach is a bit shorter. So whenever someone talks about the average height and reach of featherweights and lightweights compared to Holloway and stuff like that, just show them this. They're roughly the same height and length. Actually, the reason why the reach of lightweight is actually longer than featherweight, you have to give a lot of that credit to Kevin Lee and Tony Ferguson, right? When you talk about Kevin Lee's reach being 78 inches, and you talk about Tony Ferguson's reach being 76 inches, which is longer than everybody in the featherweight division, that inflates that lightweight reach a lot. The most common reach you see in the top 15 is like 71 inches or 70 inches. The most common you see in featherweight is actually also like 70 inches, right? When you talk about like guys like Jeremy Stevens and Brian Ortega, Korean Zombie, I mean, Korean Zombie is actually a little bit longer. Volkanovski, I mean, there's all, I mean, Volkanovski actually a little bit longer. So that's an interesting thing that I had to crunch numbers for. And I found out this, I would actually like to do this also with like middleweight and light heavyweight and other divisions as well. How big is the gap in height and reach compared to each other? I would say between middleweight and light heavyweight, there is a big gap actually in height. A lot of those light heavyweights are like six foot two at least. Whereas in middleweight, it seems like a lot of guys are like six foot. There's going to be a giant gap though between flyweight and bantamweight. There's going to be a big gap there, especially with Corey Sanhagen at 135. And now let's get right to the questions here. I know you guys have a lot of them. Actually, there's more questions for this podcast than any other podcast I've ever had. And the way this is going to work is we're going to start with the most like comment. If you guys want to ask any questions, you can ask on the community tab of my YouTube page where I post questions for podcasts. Just reply your questions under there. I try to get to as many as possible within like an hour window time. And again, questions with the most likes will get read first. So I guess the quicker you get to them or the better your question is, the more likes they're obviously going to get. And we're going to start with Brian Liddy. If Connor never boxed Floyd, do you believe he would have maintained his karate stance? P.S. Your analysis is always great and has changed the way I look at MMA on my own podcast, Pineapple Dojo. Oh, I'll be sure to check it out, man. So if Connor never fought Floyd, would he have maintained that karate stance? Yes, I do believe going into boxing has influenced his stance even more. Not only going into boxing, but the fact that he lost to Floyd because he believed he would have beaten Floyd. Losing to Floyd even for Conor McGregor is, is a blow to him, right? So 100%. Most likely he couldn't help it right after the Floyd fight. 
he went right into boxing training. He went to correct his boxing stance and all that stuff and drill it into his head. People have to also remember, he brought in his old boxing coach. Why did he do that? He didn't need help with boxing that much in MMA. It was a lot more with the wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and all that other stuff. He brought his boxing coach most likely to get him prepared for boxing. And that 100% with the Floyd fight had to have influenced his change of stances. And it's not as compatible with MMA as his karate stance was. And frankly, no one's is. If you stand so much like a like a boxer, you're going to get your leg kicked, man. You're also going to get taken to the ground. And Connor did also say before the Dustin fight, one reason why he picked to fight Dustin was to prepare himself for Manny Pacquiao, who's also a southpaw fighter, also really good with combinations and stuff. There's that as well. He probably kept to a boxing-oriented training camp, thought he would dust Dustin in the very first round, 60 seconds into the fight, and go right into boxing from this quote-unquote sparring match that it seemed like he was treating this fight as. And boy, did that backfire. So yeah, fighting Floyd, getting that boxing trainer in, these negotiations with Manny Pacquiao, the money that is available in boxing, losing to Floyd, all of that had a great influence on his change of stances. Great question, man. And then we go to the Mookie. How will people like Sean O'Malley and Conor McGregor change their game fighting styles to avoid leg kicks? There has to be a focus on defending leg kicks. That's just generally what it has to be because Sean O'Malley doesn't stay as heavy as Conor does, but he still gets leg kicked. It's almost like he's not even addressing them. It's almost like he's never expected them. And that has to be a big importance in his training camp, in both their training camps. Defend leg kicks no matter how they come. A good way to defend leg kicks is throw leg kicks off your own, right? If you take away your opponent's balance, if you t- if you start kicking at their leg, they can't kick you as hard. So why not kick at them as well? You kick their front foot, they kick yours. Okay, yeah, now we're pretty much on even ground here, right? We both are taking away power from our kicks. So Connor and Sean O'Malley defensively have to defend kicks, check move away from them, backstep, look for them a little bit more, anticipate them, train them more, but also throw more of their own, right? Keep more of a bouncy linear movement than lateral like Sean O'Malley does. Sean O'Malley likes lateral movement a little bit more than Connor does, and that is why he's not getting away from any kicks, whereas Connor can back away from some of them. He backed away from one of Dustin's calf kicks, and that's another thing, man. You have to be a little bit more focused on linear movements to back away from kicks and then retaliate right afterward. But in terms of styles... Connor should probably resort more to that bouncy footwork style that he had at 145. Sideways stance, karate, all that stuff. Bringing the kicks from leg kicks to high kicks to body kicks. He has to bring all that into his style once again in order to have a better chance. Does that mean he would beat Dustin in a rematch? No, it's not guaranteed. Even if he changes to that Connor, it's not guaranteed he wins. Dustin still has a great chance. Crazy to think that Dustin's an underdog in a potential rubber match, according to the betting odds. Hey man, go on my bookie really quick if I were you. But the thing about Sean O'Malley is, Sean O'Malley is a good style, just he has to focus on it. Then we go to Alex Marine. Who do you think will win these matchups? Okay, so all the big lightweight matchups that can happen. This is a big one. Poirier versus Oliveira. Who wins? I gotta go with Poirier. I think that's a tough fight for both guys, but I think Oliveira's gonna have a good start in the fight and really start picking up in the second round. But as he starts getting damaged to the leg, to the body, and to the head due to the combinations and how durable Poirier's gonna be in that fight, how he's gonna be able to get into Oliveira's face, land some combinations, Oliveira seems to be still a little bit uncomfortable when opponents pressure him heavily. And as fighters say, I don't like this saying, but everybody knows what they mean. Oliver is one of those guys who doesn't like to get hit. Nobody likes to get hit, but he reacts a little bit worse to taking damage than other fighters. So if Poirier can start landing combinations on him, and if he can really bypass that jab and front kick, even the switch stance combinations is great to do so. He is going to land big on Oliveira and start to hurt him in the fight. Oliveira's probably going to take down Dustin Poirier, maybe in the first couple rounds. I don't know how Oliveira's cardio is going to be for five rounds. I know Poirier is good for five rounds. Oliveira has gassed out in the past, so I don't really know.
know how he's going to fare well against a high pressure, high volume, durable Dustin Poirier that's standing in front of him. Right, if they go to war, Poirier is going to win the war. Oliveira is powerful, he's fast, and he's a sniper on the back foot. But when he starts getting hit, he does not react the same. So I got to go with Poirier in that one. Chandler versus Justin Gaethje. I got to go with Gaethje, man. Chandler's not going to take him to the ground. Gaethje's going to destroy those legs, man. Even Chandler wasn't even checking kicks against Dan Hooker. What is he going to do against Justin Gaethje? And if he starts winging out those big right hands like he was against Dan Hooker, he's going to get countered. Gaethje has very smooth footwork moving anywhere. Chandler throws big right hand. Gaethje moves back. Counter right hand left hook follow-up just like he did against Tony Ferguson. Tony made that same mistake, extending into big long punches and getting countered for it. But Ferguson's a little bit better at checking kicks or not allowing the opponent to throw kicks at him because of his pressure. Chandler's pressure is a little bit more explosive than constant. So Gaethje for sure. McGregor versus Ferguson. I gotta go with McGregor. Ferguson, if he fights the way he fought Charles Oliveira, not the same kind of tenacity, not the same kind of pressure or focus on delivering damage and feeling himself in a sense, McGregor's gonna snipe him. That's just what it's going to be. Ferguson needs to get in McGregor's face, and he's going to take a lot of damage in those first two rounds. He's going to get hurt. He might get dropped. But if he can recover, use his durability as a weapon, the same way Nate Diaz did, and gas out Connor with constant pressure, more power than Nate, takedowns are going to be a threat, light kicks that Nate doesn't really throw that much, McGregor could be in worse trouble in the third, fourth, and fifth than against anybody else besides maybe Habib Nurmagomedov. And then we go to Germar Klar. After beating Connor at 257 and looking at his past resume of all the top-level fighters he's beaten, Alvarez, Pettis, Gaethje, Holloway twice, Hooker, Connor, where does Poirier rank amongst the greatest lightweights of all time in your opinion? It's a tricky one because he does have a very high level resume, right? The guys he's beaten have been extremely high level, but he's never been the undisputed champion. He's never had this long win streak that guys like Tony and Habib had. In fact, Dustin's longest win streak in the lightweight division has only been four wins. So when you look at his lightweight career, first fight he beats Carl Diego Ferreira. Carl Diego Ferreira in 2015 was not the same guy he is today, so it's a different level of win. Then he goes and defeats Yancy Medeiros, Joseph Duffy, and then Bobby Green. Decent level competition, especially Joe Duffy during that time in 2016. That's a good win, man. Then he gets knocked unconscious badly when he fought Michael Johnson. He beats Jim Miller in a majority decision. Doesn't look good compared to what we're trying to rank him as, you know? Jim Miller's a good fighter. But being amongst the greatest of all time, to have a close fight with Jim Miller, it doesn't look as good, right? It doesn't look as good as some of his other wins that came afterwards. So then he has a no contest with Eddie Alvarez. He actually gets knocked out due to illegal knees. It was a close fight. It looked like Dustin Poirier was winning, but it became a no contest. He got knocked out. Then he went on the best win streak of his entire career. Four win streak, three of them finishes. Pettis, Gaethje, Alvarez, Holloway. You do have to note that this Justin Gaethje back in 2018 was not the same Gaethje we saw when he fought Tony Ferguson, when he fought Ezra Barboza, when he fought James Vick and Habib. It was a worse version of Justin Gaethje. It was Gaethje with a war mentality. So it wasn't the best version of Gaethje, but it was definitely a very good version, right? Any version of Justin Gaethje is elite. He beat Eddie Alvarez. Holloway was his best win and probably still is his best win in his entire career. Maybe that or the Connor win. Then he loses to Habib, gets finished. Didn't look too great in the fight, as nobody really does. Then he beats Dan Hooker in a decision. Then he knocks out Conor McGregor with some trouble in the first round. It's a very good lightweight career. I'd probably put him just from eye value and knowing how his performances went. I'd probably say Dustin Poirier is 100% a top 5 lightweight of all time. 
Do I put him toward the top? Do I put him at Habib level? No, Habib is absolutely the greatest lightweight to ever exist. Do I put him number two? Who would be number two? Would it still be Tony Ferguson? Would it be Huffatos Angels? Would it be Benson Henderson? Would it be Frankie Edgar? Right, when you look at Tony Ferguson's record, you're talking about the second most legendary win streak in the lightweight division, 100%. The guy didn't lose for over eight years. 12 win streak, which is triple of anything Dustin Poirier did. He didn't get high-level competition, only probably surpassed by Habib Nurmagomedov, right? Glayson Tiabob, when he defeated him, was good. Josh Thompson was really good. Edson Barboza was really good. Lando Venado had to be a notable win due to the fact of how unpredictable he was, and Tony took it on very short notice. That's a hard style to fight with no preparation. Then he defeated Huffle Dos Anjos. Right, that's a big win, man. Kevin Lee after, Anthony Pettis and Donald Cerrone, and most of these are finishes. Loses to Justin Gagey, and then loses to Charles Oliveira. So would you say Tony Ferguson's above Dustin Poirier? Right, there's more names on his resume in the lightweight division. Even though Dustin beat Max Holloway, he beat Connor, and he beat guys like Justin Gagey. They both have a mutual opponent in Pettis. He beat Eddie Alvarez, but that was an Alvarez that was on his way out of the UFC. They beat Dan Hooker, was a good fighter. I would say Dustin has bigger names. Like when you look at the individual names, Dustin has beaten better fighters at the top, but Tony has fought so many high level guys. It's hard to be consistent as he was. It's hard. It's hard to compare them to. They're very close, I think. But then when you look at the undisputed champions, like the one I always like to point to is Hava Dos Anjos, probably the most underrated champion in UFC history. His longest win streak in the lightweight division was a five-win streak in the UFC, right? He hit a five-win streak twice. The guy that derailed a 10-win streak was Habib Nurmagomedov. That was right in between two five-win streaks. So he beat a very good Donald Cerrone back in the day. Donald Cerrone is one of the top guys at the time. Knocked out a prime Benson Henderson in the very first round. Schooled Nate Diaz. Dominated a prime Anthony Pettis, who was the champion, then destroyed Donald Cerrone in a little bit more than a minute. And also he did beat Paul Felder in his very last fight. He was also the champion, right? He won the undisputed belt and defended it once. Havo Dos Anjos, I probably say, is above Dustin Poirier. And he might even be above Tony Ferguson, but I don't know, man. The losses that Tony took in his last two fights definitely diminishes his impact of the lightweight division. But when you look at the upside of his career, I mean, really, Habib had a better upside. And then you look at Benson Henderson. Benson Henderson had an amazing lightweight career. If you include WEC, which I always would like to do because it's the same guys. I mean, the UFC brought in the WEC fighters into their divisions. So he defeated Donald Cerrone twice in the WEC. He also beat Jimmy Varner, right? Jimmy Varner was very legit in 2010. He came into the UFC, beat a prime version of Jim Miller, beat prime Clay Guida, and then beat Frankie Edgar twice in very close fights. Dominating Nate Diaz, beat a prime Gilbert Melendez, and then beat a prime Josh Thompson. I'd probably say that's above Dustin Poirier as well. Beating a guy like Frankie Edgar twice, who was the best lightweight in the world. Beating Gilbert Melendez, who was coming off a seven-win streak out of Strike Force, was the Strike Force champion for a while, who beat Jorge Masvidal, Josh Thompson, Shinya Aoki, I mean, he had a great career in Strike Force. So Benson beat that guy. Benson also beat Jim Miller and Clay Guida. Beat Don Cerrone twice and Jamie Varner. Yeah, I definitely say Benson is above Dustin Poirier as well. And then when you look at Frankie Edgar's lightweight career, he did lose to Gray Maynard, which he does eventually avenge, but he beats Sean Shirk. Sean Shirk was legit, man. He'd be like a top three-ish lightweight if you compare it to today's standards, you know? Back in the day, he would be like a top three lightweight. And he only lost to the absolute best. Guys like GSP, Matt Hughes, Frank Yeager. Those are like the only guys Sean Shirk ever lost to. Then he beats a prime BJ Penn twice. First fight was close. Second fight, not so much. Goes into a draw with Gray Maynard. Then knocks out Gray Maynard. Made him never the same again. Then loses to Benson twice. Then leaves the lightweight division forever. It was a short-lived lightweight run. But when you talk about prime BJ Penn beating him twice, beating a prime Gray Maynard, is that enough to be above Dustin Poirier? Also, the fact he was the champion, defended the belt three times. 
which is the, actually the lightweight record. I can see an argument for both. Dustin overall beat higher level competition than Frankie, but he was never the undisputed champion, never defended the belt. And also he was finished in the lightweight division a few times. But then again, Frankie has more losses at lightweight. He lost to Gray Maynard and Benson twice. I'd probably say Dustin's above Frankie. So my lightweight greatest of all time list goes Habib, Tony Ferguson, Huffa Dos Anjos, Benson Henderson, Dustin Poirier. And then right after that is Frankie Edgar. I know people will say, what about BJ Penn? Man, I like BJ Penn, but his resume in the lightweight division only. If you include welterweight, now we're talking about something entirely different. But just lightweight, it does not even compare, man. Yeah, Diego Sanchez was elite back in the day, but it was a short-lived lightweight run. Not a lot of great competition beating. He beat Sean Shirk, which is a good fight. Joel Stevenson was okay. And Jens Pulver was pretty good. But Diego Sanchez was definitely the best guy he beat. And that's pretty much it. He was the guy that pretty much popularized the lighter weight classes. And that's what people like to rank as the greatest of all time. But when you only look at resume and how they performed and all that stuff, I do not put them on the level of even Frank Yeager or Dustin Poirier. So interesting question, man. I love those kind of questions. And then we go to simply pump. Could leg kicks be a problem for Usman if Burns goes to them? I noticed that Usman's legs are skinny and he will not take Burns down. Therefore, we should be open to light kicks. Burns can just throw them and not be worried about getting taken to the ground. And then there's uh, two more questions. Should Connor go back to his old karate stance? His new stance looks a little bit stiff. Some will say stuck in the mud. Last question is how would Tony versus Connor go now? Okay, two of those I pretty much uh, answered. So the first one. Yeah, man, why not? Burns, just throw light kicks. There's only two risks to throwing light kicks if Usman does catch them. Usman has extremely long arms. He can counter with a right hand if he catches a kick. Also, he can back Burns into the cage, walk him back, kind of how Connor did against Dustin, and clinch up with him. Usman's path to victory is the clinch, 100%. He's stronger than Burns. He's a better wrestler than Burns. He's bigger than Burns. There's a lot of activity in the clinch from foot stomps to body shots. It's going to be hard for Burns to capitalize in that situation. Burns is just overall the better striker. The only thing he's going to have to deal with is the reach and a little bit of the power. Usman has good straight punches, but he doesn't retract them that well and he doesn't have good setups. It's really like just the punch itself is really nice, but Burns is so much faster, man. It's going to be hard to see Usman beat Burns in the striking exchanges without gassing about or something like that. Also, Burns can try to take down Usman. Why not? You have nothing really to worry about if you try unless he reverses the position to the cage and holds it there with foot stomps and stuff. Gilbert's going to need a good pedicure after this fight. So, to answer your question, leg kicks all day, man. Why not? Go to that calf. Thing is, Usman also stands pretty heavy sometimes on that front foot. Then we go to Pratier Mandel. How many years do you think Pori has left before he chooses to retire? He mentioned himself that he's fallen out of love with fighting. Um, I think it was a little bit of a misconception. I, I don't think he hates fighting. I understand he says he hates this. He told DC, I hate this, but I'm a dog in here. I think he was a little bit emotional, and he alluded to after in the press conference, the preparation, the fight week was was getting to his head. Like, he didn't like the entire fight week. He was kind of going crazy, and which led to a bit of anxiety in the press conferences, which he did confirm. So everybody who thought Pori looked a little bit off in the press conference was right. He said he had a bit of anxiety, but it was mainly due to fight week, not necessarily his fight with Khan or anything like that. So the cause of why he was anxious was different than what people thought. And how many years does he have left? Well, let's see how old he is. He's 32 years old. I can actually see him going until 36. When you fight Conor McGregor and you make a boatload of money, you tend to see those fighters not fight as often because they get paid. They feel comfortable. That is probably going to happen to Dustin for a little bit. So because of that, I don't see him fighting past 36, to be honest. Why would he have to do that? Right? If you're rich, why would you fight past 36 unless... Unless you just love the competition like Alistair Overeem. Alistair Overeem's rich. 
mean, he makes so much money out of his fights, and he's still going, man, at 40 years old. Just loves the competition, loves the sport, just loves what he does. And maybe Dustin will be that guy as well. We know, we, we don't know. But he has other things that he's working on with the Fight Foundation. He has a family and all that stuff, and it seems like that's a big, big focus in his life, right? If you have a passion for something that's even greater than your profession... I don't see that person sticking around that much longer. So I'd say my prediction is Pori will probably retire 35 years old, 34 years old. He's been in the game for a while, man. Even though he's only 32, a lot of damage, a lot of fights, a lot of time in the UFC. So he's a little bit older than his actual age shows. Then we go to Aaron Rubalcava. What should Colby Covington's shtick be now that Trump's out of office? I'm going to show you the picture right here. Only winners over here. Biden Harris all day. That's what Colby has to do, man. If he wants to stick with a meme, if he wants to just make this funny and still bring people to his side and not be as political as he is, just turn around the corner, man. I, he won't do that, though. He'll stick with the Trump theme because he's close with Trump. He's close with his son. So he'll still go Trump. But I just wish he just goes Biden. Why not? He only he only messes with winners. Then we go to Parzival. Number one, I already answered that, what adjustments could kind of do in a trilogy. Number two, who do you think has the best shot at leaving 2021 as the lightweight champion out of Poirier, Chandler, Gaethje, and Charlie Olives? Best shot at leaving 2021 as the lightweight champion. Call me crazy. I'm going to say Justin Gaethje. Call me crazy, man. I understand he lost to Habib and he lost to Poirier. This is a different Gaethje than Poirier fought. This Gaethje is a problem against Poirier. So the reason why I'm saying Gaethje, this is how I'm mapping it out. Poirier is going to fight Charlie Olives. Poirier beats Charlie. That takes away Oliveira from the conversation for a while. He's going to need like two, three wins until he gets back in there. Gaethje not only beats but knocks out Chandler, let's say second round, right? He does it in the summer. Then we do the rematch, Poirier versus Gaethje. At the end of the year, let's say maybe Poirier fights Connor in the meantime, you know, maybe in the fall or something like that. Poirier beats Connor in the trilogy. Gaethje versus Poirier rematch, and I think Gaethje might be Poirier, man. I think he might. Those light kicks aren't going to work on Gaethje. Gaethje's going to beat down that leg, and he now understands. He even alluded to it, and I'm so happy when fighters do this, man. He said when your opposite stance is, the calf kicks, the inside leg kicks aren't as effective. And that is what got him knocked out. That's what got him caught against Poirier. There were opposite stances, and he was hammering the inside of the leg. What that was doing was, it would actually move Poirier's leg into position to throw the left hand. So Poirier gets hit by the leg kick, Poirier lands the left hand. That's what just kept going on. So if Gaethje throws the lead leg kicks, which he has shown in the past, he's amazing at doing. If he starts going to the body or something, right? Use that power in his legs to go to the body instead. If he starts pole countering against Poirier and establishing a jab or a right hand taking off the outside angle, which is something he never did against Poirier in the first fight, it'd be a good one. But I think Gaethje would probably win, be the champion by the end of 2021. And even if Connor beats Poirier and fights Gaethje by the end of the year, it seems like a lot of people now are going with Gaethje due to the light-kicking factor, how powerful he is, how good his chin is. He's even more durable than Dustin. He'd probably beat Connor as well. In all honesty, predicting who's going to be the lightweight champion by the end of the year is almost impossible. <laughs> These guys are so good, man. It could be Poirier. It could be Chandler. It could be Gaethje. It could be Oliveira. It could even be Carl's Diego Fajardo jumps up in there. Isla Mahashev might go and fight Connor next and establish himself as a number one contender. Like, you never know what's going to happen. Tony Ferguson might reestablish himself and fight. I mean, this is why we love the lightweight division. It's so stacked. Everyone is so close in skill. It could be anybody. Number three, how do you think the bigger featherweights and Max Ortega Zabit Cater would compete at 155 from a technical standpoint, assuming that they're all fully prepared for the weight class? Keep up the great work. Thanks so much, man. So these bigger guys, how would they compete at 155? So it's actually a very good question stemming off of what I already talked about 
when I compare lightweight to featherweight and how close the gap is in size. I still see Max having a problem with power punchers, right? With guys like Gagey, with guys like Poirier, maybe even Michael Chandler, he's going to have a problem against Conor McGregor for sure. Those are the guys I think beat him. Chandler, though, he can absolutely beat Chandler. If he starts moving around some of those big shots and countering him and then putting a pace on him for the rest of the fight, be very methodical in where he moves along the cage. There's a big path for him to defeat Michael Chandler. But the rest of the guys, I don't think so. I think he beats most of the other ones. I think he beats Dan Hooker. I think he can beat Tony Ferguson, especially this version. I think he beats Paul Felder. I think Max will probably be like a number six contender, number seven contender. But always be competitive with those top guys. Brian Ortega, though. I think Ortega beats Charlie Olives. He can lose to Connor, but there is a path to victory for him if he goes to the Lycus and pretty much does what Dustin Poirier did. He has a very similar defensive stance compared to uh, Poirier's. So he could do a lot of those check hooks and stuff. He switches stances too. Take a lot of those angles off Connor. Think about it. Who has Connor really fought that switches stances on him? Nobody except Max. But Max in the day was only orthodox. That'd be something very different that Connor's never fought against. But against some of the guys that he can't take to the ground and he's outgunned, such as Justin Gaethje, Michael Chandler, maybe even Tony Ferguson, Ortega's gonna have a very, very tough time with those guys. Now Zabit, man, if that cardio was not an issue. He'd be super legit and lightweight. He's so tall and lanky. He'd be the tallest guy in that division. And probably the most well-rounded in the 155-pound division. It's just the cardio, man. That's the only issue. I think he beats Connor. And anybody now who thinks that Connor would probably beat Zabit, oh, you'd probably think, oh, maybe Zabit would beat Connor. I mean, his leg kicks are devastating. I mean, Zabit keeps going to those kicks. He's hard to hit in general. He's so long. He's longer than Connor is. He has a takedown threat at all times. Very unorthodox takedowns that Connor for sure isn't drilling all the time. Check hook switching stances Connor have a hard time with Zabi and they're both not great with their gas tank and Cater I think is very competitive with everybody I think there's not a lot of guys in that division that blows him out right he could beat anybody in that division and he can slightly lose to any of them so if you think about him versus Connor, if he fights Connor, he's going to get hit in those first two rounds pretty hard. But he's so tough. Chin is so good. I don't know if Connor is going to be able to keep up that kind of pressure and keep up that kind of activity before Cater starts firing back and starts hurting him. Right? Cater is also a lot better as the fight kind of plays out. He's not a good counter puncher, but he's very good with his offense. And he's also longer than Connor as well. If he fights someone like Justin Gaethje, I mean, think about that too. I think a fight with Gaethje would be extremely competitive. The leg kicks might be a huge problem, but Cater is a lot better these days at getting away Away from leg kicks, right? He kind of learned from the Hanato Moicano fight, but he's a lot better of a boxer than Geishi is, right? He can make Geishi pay in all different kind of angles, and Geishi isn't as marauding as he used to be, so Cater doesn't have to counter as much. He can intercept, which he's pretty good at, and he can lead the dance, starting off with those long jabs. I think a fight with Poirier would be extremely competitive. Like, Cater can put a fight against anybody. So I say Max would be like number seven, number six rank. I say Ortega, maybe right below that, number eight, number nine. I think Zabi has more potential than Holloway and Ortega, but ah, it's it's iffy because if guys are just taking advantage of his cardio issue, he could lose to anybody. I mean, he's not so powerful. I mean, maybe he becomes more powerful at lightweight and he can actually knock these guys out. If they start taking advantage of that cardio issue, imagine Gaethje catching him tired. Imagine Dustin Poirier catching him tired. Zabit is not going to survive. So I think Zabit has a potential ceiling to be like a top three, top five fighter. But in reality, the way he is right now, I think he's around where Holloway would be, like number six, number seven. Cater, on the other hand, I think he would take like Paul Felder's spot. He's like the next Paul Felder of that division. He's competitive with everybody. He would win good fights. He would lose good fights. He would be the guy that's always a threat, no matter what. 
And then we go to the Stats Life Productions. You are starting a new MMA gym called the Albanian Weasel Academy, kind of like the American Kickboxing Academy, and you need to pick four fighters along with one head coach to build your gym around. The only caveat is that you can only pick one fighter per weight class. Which fighters and head coach do you pick? Oh, that's interesting. You know what? I got to put Mike Brown as the head coach. You cannot go wrong with Mike Brown. There's a big reason for that. He's very good with individual teaching, like teaching one specific fighter at a time. And he's very good with classes, like a lot of elite fighters all together. He's good at doing that as well. So he'd be good in the beginning and he'd be good at the end when you get more fighters in the academy. He's also a former fighter, so he understands all the ins and outs. He's coached champions. How can you go wrong with Mike Brown? Four fighters from different weight classes. I could just pick anybody. So I pick Adesanya. He has a big window in this game. He's a star. So I pick Adesanya for the middleweight division. He kind of be the star of the gym. I don't want to pick too many of those kind of guys. I pick Zabit would have to be in there. I pick Surreal Gone. And I put Islam Mahashev. So you got guys you can build up on. You got guys with a lot of hype right now. Younger guys for the UFC. And you have that star kickboxing elite. With also Surreal Gone is a really good kickboxer as well. There's a mix of everything in that gym. You got Islam Mahashev's grappling, which is excellent for MMA. You guys have beats well-roundedness and his creativity. Also, we got to build on that cardio, man. We're going to have to work on that. Surreal Gone, we got to mold him into an unstoppable heavyweight. Got to train a lot with Islam Mahashev and Zabit. I think he has a style and athleticism to mimic a lot of that athletic grappling style that Islam and Zabit bring to the table. Imagine the sight of the six foot five Surreal Gan who's flowing around the cage like a butterfly and then he just steps off the outside and trips you out just like Zabit does to everybody. That'd be a hard thing to get around for heavyweights. Heavyweights are not going to be prepared for that. Also, he can train with Israel Adesanya all day. Train gets an elite kickboxer who's faster than him, lighter than him. That'd be excellent for Surreal Gan. Zabit is well around. He can work everything in the game. Islam Mahashev can work with him as well. So you got two heavier guys and two lighter guys that could just work with each other too. I think that's perfect. Then we go to Thomas Burns. Is McGregor's chin overrated? Considering that he has been rocked by Diaz, which led to a finish, dropped by Habib, not to mention he has just been knocked out. What you think? Overrated? I don't know. I mean, there's people that think McGregor's chin is like Nganu level, but he definitely has a good chin. That's all I'll say. McGregor has a good chin. When you talk about the Diaz fight, he was already tired before he got hit. He blew his wad in the first round, came into the second, not really the same kind of guy. And Diaz landed a perfect 1-2 that Conor just did not see coming. It was a counter punch that landed on McGregor, and counter punches usually hit harder. Now getting dropped by Habib is not like a discrediting thing. Habib hits pretty hard. Look how he knocked out Thiago Tavares, right? When he hits guys, they feel it, man. And it's not like generally how perfect his punching form is. Habib's power comes from his explosion. He is so quick to explode into everything he does. That goes into the lead uppercut, right overhand, or even takedowns. He has the same explosion for everything. And no matter who you are in front of Habib, if he's throwing that big looping right hand with everything he has, it's going to hurt, man. Connor also didn't see it coming. He thought it was going to be a takedown. And he got caught flush to the chin with his hands down. Now getting knocked out by Dustin Poirier, yes, he got knocked unconscious. But he took a beating before that, man. He took big, big shots before he was knocked out. He took a flush left straight that sent him to the cage. Another big looping left overhand right over his guard. And the fact that he was still firing back during all that showed that McGregor has a good chin. Most guys are not able to recover after taking that many blows. Then you go into the other left hand and then you go to the right hook that dropped him. And then two more punches that put him out cold. That's a lot of big shots, power punches that needed to be delivered in order to knock out Conor McGregor. And when you look at McGregor's chin when he fought Chad Mendes for an example. He took big shots from Mendes and never looked rocked at all. He did take a pretty big left hook from Jose Aldo. A lot of shots from Nate Diaz in the second fight. He took several big shots from Dustin Poirier in their first fight. So what I'll say is McGregor's chin is above average. 
average. It's not adamantium level like uh, Max Holloway, right? Let's not get crazy and start comparing McGregor's chin to Holloway's chin, but it's definitely solid, man. And then we're gonna big boy Sensationalzal. How does Poirier do at 170? Mentioned the lightweight is getting harder to make. I do not like his chances at welterweight. Those some heavy hitters up there, man. I think he won't be completely shut out from the from the top ten or something. I think he would be a top ten fighter. But he would be very, very small. He's not super big for 155. I understand he said it's hard to make it, but it is for everybody. Look at how big all these 155ers are, man. Poirier at five foot nine, walking around like 180, maybe a walk around 190, coming down to 170. That's still relatively small for the amount of fat he has on his body compared to someone like Kamar Usman, right? Usman walks around in like the 180s, 190-ish, you know? But he is lean as lean gets all year round. That's all muscle, man. There's no added fat to Kamar Usman. Poirier is not going to be that, man. If Poirier was as shredded as Kamar Usman was, he'd be much lighter than Usman. So he will be outgunned by many of those guys. He does not want to get taken to the ground by guys like Colby Covington, Kamar Usman, Gilbert Burns, etc., etc. But I do think Dustin could beat someone like Michael Chiesa, probably stop some of his takedowns and completely outbox him. Neil Magny would be an interesting fight due to the length and due to his strength and the fact that Magny can keep up with the volume. Dustin really does a lot of his damage in close range, as you saw even against Conor McGregor. It's going to be really tough to get close on Magny. Poirier will also have a hard time against guys like Vicente Luque, right? Imagine trying to strike with Luque the entire time. Luque is much more powerful. He's much bigger. Good takedown defense, solid Muay Thai skills all around, precise counter left hooks. I think Jeff Neal might beat him. Leijing Leung would not be an easy fight. Blah Muhammad would not be an easy fight. Hamza Shemaev might absolutely just dust him. Everybody inside that top 15, besides maybe Robbie Lawler, would be a tough fight. If not, he'll outright get dominated in those fights. Right, so I'd say Poirier would be in the lower end of the top 10. One of the top contenders that Poirier will definitely be competitive with is someone like Jorge Masvidal. Due to the style. They're both so well-rounded. They both have good power. I think Poirier would have more power at 170 than at 155. I think Poirier will not hit as hard as Jorge, but I still think he might lose to Jorge as well. Jorge's kicks to the body are going to be a big weapon against a southpaw Poirier. Those are going to be devastating, man. And then we'll go to Doto. Rank these prospects in order. Saryukian, Fiziev, O'Malley, Shemaev, Yadong, and Tapuria. Hey man, I'm liking Fiziev right now. Fiziev looks like a monster out there. Yadong has had a bit of a slip up in his last fight. And even Tapuria had a tough time in his last one against Damon Jackson in the first round. Even though he got a quick knockout. O'Malley has a lot of potential, but he has so many, not even defensive weaknesses necessarily, but like his body is his weakness. Saryukin is solid. I think he's like a mid-rank prospect. And then we have Shemaev, right? Shemaev may be the number one prospect of that list. So I'll rank it like this. I'm going to go number one, Fiziev, for the fact that he's the most established prospect out of these guys. Defeating Hinata Moikana, Mark Casey in his last two fights is pretty big. He has a loss to Magomed Mustafaev in his UFC debut. That's going a little bit against him. So I say number one's Fiziev. I could be wrong on that. Number two is Shemaev. Number three, I'm going to go with Sean O'Malley, but I can be wrong on that. I'm banking a lot on his potential skills. Number three, Saryukian. Number four, Tapuria. And number five, Yadong. But that's not a slight to any of these guys. I think all of these fighters are going to be something in the future. Then we're going to Hassan Chata. Number one, how would Max versus Conor go now? And number two, in hindsight, would Jorge have destroyed Conor McGregor? So Max versus Conor. I still think Connor beats him. Max is not super powerful, especially cut up to 155. Max also still has a big problem when people intercept him and counter him. He has a problem also with pressure, and Connor does all these things together. Even in the Volkanovski rematch, 
Holloway was still having problems advancing on Volkanovski whenever Volkanovski simply fainted at him. Max does this thing where if he cannot build up in a fight because the opponent throws something in his face or makes it look like they're going to do something, Max always takes a big back step away and it cuts off all of his momentum. Connor is one of the best guys at doing all these things from countering Max, intercepting him, pressure him at the same time, throwing feints at him. Max will have to guess a lot when he's fighting Connor. And when he's guessing, it's going to give Connor a lot of opportunities to catch him. I think Max should stay at 145 for a while. I think 155 is going to be a tough one for him. And then would Jorge have destroyed Connor? Yeah, looking at this, Jorge would have absolutely destroyed Connor. It probably wouldn't have been. A flurry that knocked out Connor. It would probably be one big shot that eventually caught him. Jorge has devastating leg kicks as well. He throws body and head kicks, which Dustin doesn't do. He has better movement than Dustin. He's a lot better with range than Dustin. He doesn't have to get in close. He also has a takedown threat. He's a better wrestler, I think, than Dustin is. He's definitely more durable than Dustin. And he switches stances, which is a big thing, right? If Connor's coming at him with a traditional boxing approach, Jorge's one of the last guys you want to do that against. Jorge's an amazing boxer, especially when you come in with a one-dimensional approach like that. Connor would have definitely lost to Jorge pretty badly. Then we're going to Ramon Lozano. Who can put you to sleep faster? A Woodley fight or a Francis left uppercut? Keep up the great work, man. Regards from Mexico. All love to Mexico, man. Thank you so much for the question. I mean, I don't know what it is about Woodley. There's certain matchups where he does nothing, kind of just like tries to win on the slightest amount of points he can. And then there's fights where he just explodes for the big knockout. It's going to be interesting when he fights Vicente Luque, who's a big step down in competition compared to who he's been fighting for like the last five to seven years. That's not an insult to Vincente Luque. That's just a compliment for Woodley's competition. The guy's been fighting the best guys, like top three, top five guys his entire career. And if he loses to Vicente Luque, it might be over for Woodley. Three fights in a row he loses. If it goes all five rounds, that's 24 rounds lost in a row. If he lost, let's say, five rounds against Luque, that'd be pretty bad. But here's the thing. Ignoring the ranking, Vicente Luque can absolutely have a good style up against Woodley. 100%. He can beat Woodley. In fact, he might be the favorite against Woodley. He's a much better striker. He has a lot more variety. He's taller. He's powerful. He can knock out Woodley. Woodley's taking a lot of damage. And Vicente Luque is not going to be easy to take to the ground. Woodley needs to bring the fight to Luque a little bit. Not be super aggressive, but kind of just stand his ground in front of Luque instead of getting backed up so easily. I know he's going to look for the big right hand. Everybody knows it. Woodley needs to change up his game a bit. Everybody has figured him out. A lot of patience, a lot of moving back, a lot of scaling on the cage, and looking for the big, quick, overhand right or uppercut and sometimes a right low kick are those going to work against Luke is Luke going to extend into that right hand like several opponents have done in the past I think with Luke's gym training with guys like Gilbert Burns and getting training from Henry Hooft because Luke is coming up against a one-dimensional fighter in a sense it's going to be so much easier for him to game plan for and not get caught by that big right hand Woodley can get rocked and dropped by one big shot from Luke as well I mean we all know Woodley's powerful but don't sleep on Luke's power man I'm very much looking forward to that fight then we go to Ted Brad why do you think Leon Edwards is so underrated and overlooked? There's several reasons for this. Number one, he's been out forever. We haven't seen this guy fought since he fought Hava Dos Anjos. And how many fights did Hava Dos Anjos have in the meantime? He had two fights since then. He fought Chiesa and Paul Felder. I mean, July 20 of 2019 is a very, very long time. That's a year and a half since Leon has fought. So there's that. Also, there's a lot of hype with a lot of guys he gets put up against. When people talk about Jorge Mazadal, when people talk about Hamza Shemaev, when people talk about Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington, there's so much hype on these guys. They overlook the point fighter, the quote-unquote point fighter that is Leon Edwards, right? They're not so excited about him, but they're excited about these other guys. So it's easy to overlook Leon. But think about this now. When people put up Leon against Stephen Thompson, now he doesn't get overlooked, right? Everybody says that's a good fight. 
because Stephen Thompson doesn't have the same kind of hype around him that guys like Hamza and Jorge have. That's ultimately what it is. So if he gets a win over one of the hyped up fighters, it's going to take away a lot of that overlooked point of view. Then we go to Golden Flower. Does Chandler have a future in commentating after or even while fighting? He's good at talking, analyzing, and promoting. He's actually exceptional at all that. Also, except for DC, what happened to all the fighters and ex-fighters who used to commentate for Fox, like T-Wood, Florian, and Cruz, but can't seem to have them in the commentator team since the ESPN partnership? It also made for some epic post-fight interactions with fighters like Ferguson, Lee, Bisping, Covington, or Holloway, even if Bisping is an active commentator. Is Dana the saddest dude in the world after the Connor loss? So yeah, Chandler has a very good future in commentating or analyzing or whatever it is. He caught me by surprise a bit of how good of a talker he is. Usually, I was just watching his fights and didn't really pay attention to anything else. He's quick-witted. He's very respectful. Seems like a pro's pro. He knows how to cut what they say a promo. I would definitely like to see him try it at commentating for a fight after he's done. But about the fighters and ex-fighters that used to commentate on Fox. Now, I don't know how the whole contract thing goes. I think Cruz is now on ESPN. But T-Wood and Florian I've not seen since. Florian had a bit of a, a blowback. Since the whole plagiarizing thing, right? Remember when that was like the biggest meme in MMA? But Florian's a pretty good talker. I'm not like the biggest fan of Florian's uh, commentating, but I think objectively he's pretty good at it. And in terms of Tyron Woodley, I mean, do we even have to ask? We all know a certain guy that doesn't like Tyron Woodley. But yeah, there's many fighters that are good at this. Michael Chiesa is actually really good. Paul Felder, who would have thought Paul Felder would be as good in commentating as he is? I know Chilson does the Bellator thing, so I don't think he's able to commentate for the UFC. Hey, but do you know who they have to get on the commentating team? Or not the commentating team, but an alternative where you can like change the option of which commentating team you want to hear. They got to have Mike Perry, Diego Sanchez, and Mayhem Miller on a commentating team. Just pure chaos. And yeah, Dana didn't seem too happy after uh, UFC 257. And then we go to Anthony Cruz. How long do you think a fighter's layoff should be after taking a lot of damage? Do you think Tony came back too soon? It depends on the damage. If you get knocked out, you should take at least no less than half a year off. And that includes hard sparring. And what happened to Tony Ferguson when he fought Justin Gaethje or Kelvin Cater when he fought Max Holloway? If something like that happens, I think they should take nine months plus off. That's a little bit too much damage to come back right away. Did it have an impact? on him did he come back too soon i think he came back too soon but i don't know how much of an impact that had in his game he definitely didn't show up in the Oliveira fight the same as he did against even justin gaethje right it's not just the physical damage to your brain which of course is probably the most important part of it but also the damage it does to your confidence to your mental state when you get beat down by someone else there's another mental battle you have to win because there are fighters who never come back the same maybe they're not physically damaged as much but their confidence never really comes back and maybe that's what happened to Tony Ferguson. He didn't want to get hit. He didn't pressure or became as aggressive as he liked to be when he fought Charles Oliveira. And it just seemed like he tried to play a lot safer than we've ever seen before from Tony. So Tony fought Justin Gaethje back in May 9th of 2020. That means, man, he shouldn't. And he fought Charles Oliveira on December of 2020. That's seven months but that also includes sparring, that also includes hard training because of the training camp. Probably got into training camp maybe two months prior to uh, December. So we'll say October he started training again, which is five months after he fought Justin Gaethje. That's way too soon, man. I think he should not get into any kind of training camp or any kind of hard sparring until at least February of this year. Then we go to Bruce Lee. Why do we all underestimate Dustin Poirier? I think it stems to his previous losses. Whenever he used to lose, it was pretty bad like knockouts, submissions, and they weren't just 
TKOs and we got tagged and it flurried into a finish. No, man, he would get one shot and it never looked good for him. And in the fights he lost, he never really put up a good competitive fight. So I think those lingering big time knockout losses and submission losses, they keep playing in people's heads and it makes people think that he has a bad chin, that he's not tough, he's not as good as his opponent. And the other part of it is, I think some people can't grasp the progression rate of his skills, how much better he has gotten. It is actually difficult to really understand how much better he has gotten specifically, like in detail. And that ultimately does lead to people just thinking about his previous performances. This kind of thing also plays a part with uh, Stipe Miocic and how underestimated he still is. Even to this day, he's an underdog against Nganu and an underdog against John Jones. And I think it stems to, you know, his knockout loss to Stefan Struve. When he lost to Stefan Struve, the heavyweight division was probably as popular it's ever been, right? With Cain Velasquez on the scene, JDS, there was a lot of big stars. And in his fourth UFC fight, the first time he was a main event, he got knocked out by Stefan Struve badly, man. And that was a first impression in a lot of people's eyes. So many people did not know anything about Stipe Miocic until he fought Stefan Struve. Struve was actually the more famous fighter. But people knew Stefan Struve as nothing special in a way. Like, if you lost to Struve, you probably weren't going to make it. And you know what they say about first impressions, man. They're hard to shake off no matter what the other guy does. So then he goes on a three-fight win streak after. He beats Roy Nelson, Gonzaga, and Maldonado. So he bounced back in a big, big way. And the only one he headlined was against Maldonado, where the narrative was Maldonado was too small, and therefore he got knocked out by a heavyweight. So he fought JDS. This was his big moment to shine. The former champ, and he loses that fight in a war. Right after he beats Mark Hunt, and he had some really good performances afterward. But those big moments early in his career, like the first impressions, he lost those fights. And I know and I know what you're thinking. He lost at JDS in a war, in a very close fight. So why did people overlook him right afterward? Well, that wasn't the narrative. The narrative around Stipe versus JDS after the fight concluded, none of it had to do with how good Stipe looked. Most of the narrative was JDS is not the same anymore. That was the narrative because he came off the Cain Velasquez fights. This is immediately after the trilogy with Cain Velasquez. The running narrative everywhere was JDS is not the same anymore. How could he get into such a close fight with Stipe? And then when JDS lost to Alistair Overeem, which was the very next fight for him, he got knocked out in the second round. And that just told everybody JDS is not the same. That's it. So because JDS is not the same, that also diminishes Stipe's performance against him in that war. So Stipe just rolls the rankings under the radar. And I think, theoretically, I think that's why people still today, just like Dustin Poirier, people underestimate Stipe Miocic no matter what. I honestly think Stipe will be underestimated his entire career. I think until the point he retires, he will be underestimated. And after he retires, people will regard him as the absolute greatest heavyweight of all time, one of the greatest fighters of all time. I think that point of view is going to be shattered after he leaves the sport. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure to like, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you listen to the audio version of this. And I have a few videos coming out very soon. Predictions of champions by the end of the year. Prospect video and nightmare matchup video. Those are getting worked on right now. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.